3: It's hard to be a serial killer and have remorse. I mean, you could could cry yourself to death (laughs) thinking about what you've done. They're usually justifying what they're doing for themselves.
0: For the very first time, the greatest minds in criminology have come together to dissect the psyches of some of the world's most prolific serial killers. These forensic psychiatrists, psychologists and pathologists have an incredible depth of knowledge and often first-hand insight into these killers, helping us to understand what makes a monster. What Follows is the second part of an interview with Dr Richard Rappaport, recorded in July 2019 for Crime and Investigation's TV series Making a Monster. Dr. Rappaport is a California based psychologist who has profiled and testified for numerous murder cases, including that of serial killer John Wayne Gacy. Having heard in the previous episode about Dr. Rappaport's interview with Gacy, here we get more of an insight into his work as a clinical psychologist. Warning, the subjects covered in this podcast are of a sensitive nature. Listener discretion advised.
3: Well, I'm a psychiatrist. I've been uh, in practice 50 years. And I uh, started out, I went to school in Philadelphia and I went to University of Pennsylvania as undergrad. I majored in philosophy. Uh, I decided... I wanted, I read some things by Freud and some other psychiatrists, uh, very minor kinds of things really, but I loved reading about it and it was very exciting to me, plus my philosophical uh, reading was, I learned a lot in philosophy that I think applies to psychiatry, uh, ways to think and ways to to understand issues, and I know that uh, a lot of things that I think about, not everybody else agrees with, <laughs> which makes me feel uh, too, it's too bad you don't understand. I don't feel it's too bad that I understand it this way. Uh, when I was in a residency, I, I, uh, happened, I happened to have to do a research project, and I, I used to like prison movies, so I. Th- Decided Since I was learning about group therapy, I wanted to do group therapy in prison. I got permission to do that. And uh, I started group therapy at Stateville Prison in the the suburb of uh, Chicago. And uh, that's what eventually led to my getting calls from attorneys on the outside who uh, learned about that. And I got invited to do some legal cases, which I had never been trained for. But uh, I enjoyed that, and eventually became a part of my practice. There's a lot of people that I see that are what they call restoration of sanity cases, people who have initially been judged to have been insane at the time of their initial crime, and then they're sent to state hospital for a year or two before they get a rehearing, and every couple of years they get a rehearing to see how they are if their sanity has been restored. If they've been judged insane at the time of the crime, then once they're sane, then the time for them to be in, in a hospital or jail is limited, theoretically. Now, there are some courts where they, they don't, they keep, they say, well, he's insane, but he's gonna serve 15 years. You know, so How do they know he's gonna be insane for 15 years? Maybe sane in, in a year. But like in a hospital, if the person's well, they should be discharged sooner after. But they're combining the punishment idea with, with the uh, uh, medical or the psychiatric part. So uh, I, I believe that uh, that's, that's a false thing. That's the wrong thing to do. I mean, if someone's insane, treat them like a medical case. And when they're well, let them go. one that I I worked on, I, let's see, down in uh, Shreveport, I saw Nathaniel Code. He killed about uh, eight or ten people, and one of them was his step grandfather. Uh, they they are angry, and this one this guy was very angry about things, and he was angry that he was uh, he was, pre- was prejudiced against him because he was black, and he was acting out about that. Uh, I saw. Uh, What's his name? Um, Ricky Green in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, and he was just immature. I mean, he starts he started pretty young, 17 or 18, uh, trying to hurt people and kill people. And uh, his father, uh, I think, made him a killer because his father uh, would shoot at the kids uh, with a BB gun. He tell him to run, run away, just like be a uh, an obstacle for him to shoot at. And uh, Ricky Green and his, and his entire family wound up in in prison. His father, his mother, and and the, and the sister, they were all criminals in some form. So uh, he just didn't stop. First person he killed, uh, Ricky killed, was a guy, and then he killed a couple of women. So he had mixed sexes. Uh, most, most of them do one sex or another, some do both, some do one sex, one, one uh, race or another, some do both, but they all have their own reasons. And I think most of them, if not all of them, have been abused themselves. And it, it comes out in this way. Uh, I think Bundy was, said that his childhood was perfect. He had a real good childhood, and that's what he said. I don't know if it was true. I didn't examine him. But uh, I, I think something has to go wrong. Now, I do think something different than I thought for, for at first. I think that people have some sort of uh, inherent traits that are, uh, say, abnormal, or that have the potential for leading for abnormality. And things happen along the way where those things are accentuated, either by the outside world or themselves. And it's just like, uh, um, they, they just uh, spend their lifetime following that trend. I, didn't, I used to believe that people weren't necessarily evil, although I've been asked that question in court. Do you believe he's really evil? And at one time I remember saying I don't think people are evil. They, they, what I would call evil now is the having the, the, uh, the DNA, having the caricatures uh, already in, in, inside of you, ready to go, that are more responsive to certain life events that are, that cause that person to then go down that route. I mean, and this you could divide this world, to the, the good guys and the bad guys. Some guys are always in trouble and some guys are, are uh, hunting down the guys who are in trouble, you know, the cops or whatever, the FBI. But these guys who became, uh, got in trouble had some proclivity for it, some, something innate in them that they had that chance to follow that route. And then there are life events that may straighten them out and some events make it worse. I, I did a case once where I was asked to examine a, a, a guy who had, he and another friend uh, killed an old man. They, they picked him up in, in the parking lot and took him out to the, um, the Marine base Outside of San Diego, and they killed this guy. And it turned out when I researched his past, he had been uh, a foster child in four or five different homes. And when he was in a home where there were good people, and he had associated with good kids from that home, he was an exemplary student. He was a prof- he was almost a professional runner. He was a successful uh, uh, cross country runner. And when he got in homes where there was bad, some bad influence, he followed that, and that's why he got in trouble killing somebody, because the guy he, he lived with led him that way. So he had a tendency to be either way. Many people who are subjected to abuse um, are suffer an abused ego, so their self-image is tarnished early on and they have a hard time um, feeling something good about themselves, either externally or internally. And then they get involved with people that are in the same, um, let's say the same ballpark they are, and they tend to, to have events or they seek events or allow themselves to be affected by events that substantiate that original negative impression. And their life builds around that, and they never get out of it. And then there's uh, people who, who do exactly the opposite.
0: We've heard how many of the serial killers that we've featured in Making a Monster suffered horrific abuse from a very young age, and that this abuse may have had a profound effect on the decisions that they have taken in later life. Why does committing a murder rectify a wrong against them.
3: There's two levels to it. One is a simple answer of revenge. Uh, another is to, to work out something on the, of the unconscious. And uh, they can take out their feelings on other people to, not just for revenge, but as if they, there's a part of themselves that uh, they project onto other people, that they that they uh, want to get rid of. Uh, there are uh, some other reasons that are probably not as classical, but those two, two things go on um, a lot of times. The people who are uh, same kind of people that are killers uh, do do they don't kill do uh, actions or behave and. Criminal ways, in other words, on a lesser scale, a less serious crime, but they're the same people who have felt injured, felt that the world's unfair, it's unjust, they don't have a, they don't have a, um, a fair shake in life, and they uh, are attracted to, to that kind of venue all the time, over and over. And even when they're, going, they're in jail and they suffer for that, they don't seem to feel uh, a need to, to change. It's hard to be a serial killer and have remorse. I mean, you could, you could cry yourself to death <laughs> thinking about what you've done. Uh, but no, they're, they're, the psychopath has, doesn't have any standards uh, of compassion, doesn't have any standards of right and wrong, and they're usually justifying what they're doing uh, for themselves. I had a patient once who was uh, talking about—I mean, this guy was not—this guy's an ordinary patient. He was not a—I didn't think he was any kind of a murderer, really, but he was so angry with his father, uh, he was plotting his father's death, I mean, he was going to kill his father. And he didn't say it all the time directly that, way. I'm going to kill my father, but he said a lot of things that made me worry about that he was going to do that. And I had a talk with him one time where I told him that I was worried about his behavior and, and his acting out on his uh, inclination to do that. So I I warned him and I uh, spent more time uh, dealing with that uh, that issue for him until he could see that that wasn't a solution to his feelings. And so just a small as a small example, I had done group therapy in a prison, and these were guys who had killed or done some pretty violent crimes in most cases. And in talking to them about the things in their lives, and they were in therapy usually for years. My, my, my groups went on for years. And they came to understand where their anger was, was and what it was coming from and how it was directed. So, I think they improved.
2: and they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
3: Every, every person I see in a treatment situation or a forensic Uh, It's always an obstacle at first, and uh, the the, uh, easier it goes in terms of becoming comfortable uh, with the other person, the better it goes. Now, when I see a forensic person, it's only a limited time. As I say, usually my exams are around four hours. So I've got to establish a certain amount of rapport that I get them to give me the full story uh, with an honest answer or honest information. And in a short time, that's not easy. But I start off with talking about a person's childhood, the very, very first things that they can remember. And sometimes when they talk about that, they're so surprised or so, un- it's so unusual that someone's asking about that. I think that they get some feeling of comfort from that. And once you get that started, it builds. If, now, there are people that are extremely hostile to the questions, they don't want to, they don't want to answer questions. And you have to get them to, to comply. And lots of times they exaggerate. and say, oh, I had a wonderful childhood, no problems. I'll have to go into it a little deeper. You know, I get them to sometimes to admit things that they've covered up. And even in these people that I see in medication management, you know, the first time I see them, I take a little history and it's given an an hour to do this whole exam. And, uh, you know, they'll just want medication, but I take a history and and I want to know what happened to them when they were a child. And most of them will skip over uh, being sexually abused, being raped, being molested. I mean, many of the women don't tell you that right away. And I sense a lot of times that there's more to it, and I'll I'll get them to to tell me to disclose these things. Now, those things are extremely important. They don't think that they're important 25 or 30 years later when they're suffering anxiety and depression, but they are uh, suffering from those early experiences which were covered up and which are part of their unconscious and which are defending against all their lives and which they don't admit to until they get into a situation like this. And I think sometimes they're gratified that they find someone that's interested enough to ask them. There's a group of uh, serial killers that that are the sexual sadist group that that is an inherent part of the the crime and inherent part of the motivation. Um, In some of the cases, they want to experience um, sexual issues that are uh, so outlandish that they would be arrested for them or they would be shunned just by the people that they know. And so it becomes a uh, a battle of uh, getting their ego or their instincts um, carried forth and going too far. Some of them feel guilty about the people that they've had sex with, and they want to get rid of the evidence of the, I mean, t- the evidence to themselves of that uh, of that sexual behavior. It's as if they got rid of the person, they got rid of the, the deed that they committed. Most of the killers who've gone past the first few have planned their uh, killing. I mean, they have a whole scenario, and they've enjoyed the uh, the, the kill before. They've had satisfaction out of it. They, some I guess you could call it pleasure, and they're gratified for whatever their internal mechanism is to want to do that. And if they're successful, then they're they got uh, some sort of pre- uh, pl- pleasure and, and relief from the stress of planning it and having it work. There's no formula for uh, bec- becoming a serial killer. I guess there would be some people that might have severe physical uh, disabilities or dis- disfigurement that could be feeling so negative about themselves that they might, might be motivated uh, to subject other people to something that would disfigure them. Uh, Otherwise, uh, I don't know why they would be more of a monster than anybody else.
0: Coming up next on Making a Monster, the tapes, we have Professor Jethro Toomer discussing Eileen Warnos, And, of course, watch Crime and Investigations TV show Making a Monster, Monday at 9pm or catch up on demand. Tag your tweets with hashtag MakingAMonster and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Or head to crimeinvestigation.co.uk if you want to find out more about the series, with profiles on all the killers featured. Making a Monster The Tapes features interviews recorded by Monster Films for the Crime and Investigation TV series and was voiced by me, Cherry Healy. Produced by Sam Pearson and Chloe Frost with editing by Joel Porter.
2: Serial killers are made, not born.
0: The greatest minds in criminology come together for the first time.
2: There are two questions. Who are they and how did they get to be who they
3: are? I don't believe anyone is born a serial killer.
0: I do not want some of the stuff going through their minds be running around inside mine. We need to know the motivation and what they're getting out of it. Serial killers are human beings and they're not always predictable. What
2: is it that they're really trying to achieve in these killings? No infant is going to grow into a serial killer if it is loved and nurtured and successful in life.
3: Distorted backgrounds produce distorted individuals.
2: If it can be imagined, no matter how depraved, it can be done.
0: Making a Monster Or go to Amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day
0: returns. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky, soft, and glowing.